Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This week, I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Marcelo Mulholland, who is the Deputy Director of Climate for the progressive think tank Data for Progress. I was eager to talk to Marcelo about the ways that we can shift public perceptions towards progressive ideas in a durable way, and also to check in with her about the state of the presidential race in the polls. And as you'll hear, we cover that and we cover a lot more. It was a really fantastic, wide-ranging conversation. But first, I want to share a couple of important housekeeping notes with you. Firstly, as I know you will all be aware, the election is now less than six weeks away. Absentee ballots should have been sent out by now to those of you who have requested them in most states, and I would really urge you to return them as soon as possible. I can tell you that I personally sent in my own ballot to the District of Columbia Board of Elections last Saturday, and it's been an absolute weight off my mind. Honestly, it felt great to put that in the post box. If you have a different plan to vote this year, whether that's in-person early voting, dropping off your absentee ballot at the polling place, or voting in person on election day, I just want to thank you for being a voter. And if, like me, you've already cast your ballot, you might want to think about ways that you can volunteer. Check in with your local party or your campaign office to get signed up for online phone banking or text banking, postcard writing, or any of the other many ways to help. If you are like me and able to give some money towards securing a Democratic majority this year, I'd like you to point you towards this podcast's own fundraising page. The Democratically 2020 Act Blue fundraising page is set up to distribute your donations equally between the presidential campaign, the top seven competitive Senate races, and the Flippable States Fund, which focuses on down-ballot races. We're already more than halfway to our target of $5,000, and I would be thrilled if you would chip in anything that you can towards that effort. You can find that page at actblue.com slash donate slash democratically, or in the show notes for this episode. In the week where we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I know that we're all very aware of the impact this election will have on the courts, on the climate, on healthcare, on racial injustice, and on inequality. And while I know that we're all feeling the pain of that loss, and I certainly am, as she was a, a hero of mine, the best way to honor her legacy is for all of us to play our roles in keeping the American democracy afloat. And towards that end, um, obviously, we are entering a period of time where there will be quite a lot of presidential debates. And this podcast will be covering those debates just as we did the primary debates um, with a recap episode for each one. But because I didn't want the podcast to be entirely taken over um, by just debate coverage for the critical period before the election, I wanted to report that I'm going to switch to a twice weekly schedule. So you will get a Monday episode, which will be a roundup of the election related news of that week, and a Friday episode starting next week, which will be a recap of that week's debate. We've got three presidential debates um, and one vice presidential debate at a cadence of roughly one per week starting next week. So we'll certainly have plenty to talk about. So I am delighted today to welcome Marcella Mulland. Uh, podcast. Marcella is, um, works for Data for Progress, which is an organization um, I have a lot of respect 
information for. She's the deputy director for climate, um, but she's got a fascinating background doing all sorts of things. Growing up in South Florida, she worked for the Sunrise Movement as a, an organizer and a spokesperson there. She's interned for the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. Um, she's worked across a whole range of, of interesting organizations doing climate change studies and activism. Um, and I'm just really happy to have her on today. Welcome, Marcella. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that um, I have a lot of respect for Data for Progress as an organization, and I, I really do. Um, but for those of my listeners who might be less familiar with the work that you do, can you just give us a, a quick summary of what you're all about and why you're here? Yeah, so Data for Progress is a think tank that specializes in using data science to support progressive activists and causes. And we do polling and policy analysis in-house on a wide array of progressive issues from criminal justice to healthcare and climate is a big focus of our work. And that's uh, what most of my focus is on as well. Yeah. And one of the reasons I, I love the organization's work is I think, you know, your your chair or whatever, his CEO, Sean McAway, talks a lot about the organization being in the business of moving the Overton window. In other yeah. words, just trying to reshape the conversation in American politics um, to the left. And I think that's it's really interesting, <laughs> but it must be sometimes frustrating. Um, it can be frustrating. I think what we find at Data Progress a lot of our polling shows that the public is actually really supportive of key progressive priorities. So it can be frustrating operating within the American political system, obviously, for countless reasons. But um, it actually is hopeful to see where the public stands on some issues like climate, um, like big pharma specifically. The public really is in favor of uh, pretty progressive policies when it comes to, to that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's encouraging. And it's great to hear any happy news. <laughs> in this yeah. of a world. Um, but then it sort of raises the question where if which I often ask as a progressive, which is if the public is generally on our side on the issues, why are we so divided um, on the politics? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly numerous factors at play. Um, for one, our politics has become extremely polarized, where partisan identity can often overshadow or change people's views on issues. We find this all the time. We'll test uh, voters in surveys that we run nationally about their opinion on a specific issue, and it will have overwhelming uh, support from independents, Democrats, and Republicans alike. But then once we test things within a partisan frame, so explicitly saying like Republicans argue against this type of policy and Republicans are in favor of it, um, we always or usually see some sort of sorting along partisan lines. And I think it just speaks to the power that partisan identity has in our politics now. Um, but I also would say a big piece of this is also um, special interest influence on elected officials because um, on issues like gun control, on issues like climate change, um, specifically expanding healthcare access, like these are all um, policy issues that our polling shows time and again has significant public support. Um, but when it comes to actually moving the needle on policy, um, especially at the federal level, 
Um, it's hard to do that when the people who are in office are beholden to special interests, be it from the fossil fuel industry or big pharma. Um, so there you see this like mismatch where the public is on board for climate action. The public is on board for basic gun safety measures, but the people who are in power are not translating that public support into actual policy change. Yeah. And that paralysis on the political system then filters back and makes people more frustrated with politics, less engaged right. in their political system. And it just perpetuates the whole cycle. The, the lovely cycle we live in here <laughs> in U S politics. Well, got to break the frame. So um, I guess that leads us up to the the starting point for this conversation, which is obviously we have a, you know, slightly important presidential and congressional election coming up in November. You know, some might say the most important election in our history. Some might say the last gasp of U.S. democracy. You know, I, oh. I, 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 I would. I, yeah. <laughs> um, can you just map out for us what the landscape looks like in the polling and kind of how the, how the numbers look in terms of what you're seeing from a data for progress point of view? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of set the stage and take a step back, I think um, the stakes, frankly, could not be higher in this election. We're living in a moment of intersecting crises, right? There's the pandemic. The U.S. just surpassed 200,000 deaths from coronavirus. Um, and this is like if we had a 9-11 every single day for 67 days, that's how many people have died. Um, we're also dealing with the economic fallout of the pandemic where we're seeing some of the worst unemployment numbers. So the climate crisis where the West is dealing with um, really extreme wildfires, we're in the middle of a hurricane season. Um, there's been significant racial justice dimensions to all of these crises where we're seeing that black communities, indigenous communities and communities of color are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, by climate change, by police brutality. Um, and all of this is happening at the same time that our democracy is in crisis. Like you alluded to earlier, we have the president uh, openly saying that he's willing to challenge the results of the election. Obviously, with the death of Justice Ginsburg, we could be heading into a contested election with three Trump appointees on the court, um, which obviously has significant implications for the integrity of our election. Um, so things are not looking great right now. <laughs> um, and talk, talk me down from this cliff here. That's, yeah. uh, that's... <laughs> the cliff, we are on a cliff. Um, yeah. And with this much on the line, both bases are activated. And um, I'm not in the business of making predictions on elections, but our polling does uh, consistently show Biden ahead pretty significantly. And that is hopeful, but really nothing is guaranteed. So I just want to preface this by saying that no matter what the polling shows, there's too much on the line for all of us to not uh, give our all every day until the election to make sure that Biden wins. Um, but just to give you a, a glimpse into what the polling world is looking like. So there are national polls that have been showing clearly for months now that Biden has a pretty significant lead over Trump. Um, but I think it's important to note that national polls don't tell the whole story because of our uh, messed up and anti-democratic system where the electoral college is actually who decides the president. Um, so there are, it's more important to be looking at polls in a handful of key swing states and data for progress does have polling in places like Arizona, North Carolina, 
Um, and we see Biden up in most of these states, um, which also is a good sign. But um, I think just as a rule of thumb, when you're looking at, I think a lot of the media coverage often focuses on national polls and, and like yeah. national approval ratings. And it can give you a false sense of uh, we're good. <laughs> but actually, um, a rule of thumb is to, to look at national polling and deduct about three to three and a half points to account for the partisan lean of the Electoral College and to also zoom in on specific state level polling. And um in terms of the stability of the polls, I think we've seen polling be relatively stable throughout a literal pandemic and economic collapse and the biggest social movement uprising in our country's history over the summer. So we could we can expect some stability moving forward. But, um, you know, there's still a what, a month and a half now? It's too yeah. close for comfort. Um, <laughs> and things can still change. The first debate is coming up later this week. So that could shift things a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot. I think, you know, obviously I've been, you know, freakishly and obsessively watching all of the polls and checking in with not just individual polls, but the polling averages and all the different, you know, um, all the different predictors. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I've been really struck by the stability of the race. Um, and as you alluded to, there's been Biden has had even before the primary ended, Biden was a steady six points or so up against Trump in polls. Mm -hmm. And then since claiming the nomination, he's been kind of six to nine points up. But really, there hasn't been much movement and there hasn't been much movement in Trump's approval rating either throughout the duration of his presidency. It's pretty much a flat line. And I'm curious kind of how you interpret that. Does it just feel like the whole country is like everything is baked in? Because you would expect, as you alluded to, a pandemic, the, the country's largest um, racial, racial movement. Um, mm -hmm. You would expect the massive economic shifts to just change more. And actually, it, it just looks the same. Yeah, I mean, I think this speaks to, um, again, the polarization of our political system. Like, Trump has consistently had high approval ratings amongst Republicans throughout the duration of his term, regardless of what um, thing he says or how many people die on his watch. Um, so I think, you know, there is a, a, a block of voters that will stand by him no matter what, and those that base is, you know, enthusiastic and likely going to turn out in November. Um, I think, I mean, in terms of the stability of the polls, I think it's probably a good sign for our side. I think uh, the pandemic has not looked great for Trump. Um, and specifically in, in, a, in a climate frame, we see, we've actually seen policies like the Green New Deal become more popular since the mm. coronavirus. Um, which is interesting and, and might seem like random connection up on the surface, but actually uh, climate policy that is increasingly focused on justice and job creation actually makes a lot of sense that voters would see that favorably in the midst of a pandemic that's, you know, creating massive job loss. Um, so I think we are seeing the pandemic really emphasize some of the key differences between Biden and Trump and climate is one of one of the main differences. Yeah. And I think and of course, you've got I mean, we didn't even mention in the cascade of disasters, the, the wildfires, which are currently yeah. crippling the West Coast and, you know, and, and presumably there will be more climate disasters uh, to come. 
Um, and then the, with the Supreme Court, I'm curious, obviously you mentioned um, the demise of, of the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, whose loss uh, I, I am still feeling. <laughs> And I'm, I'm not over it um, yeah. because she was she was a, a great woman and an icon for justice, um, but also you know a, a voice on the court that was much needed. I'm curious because in the past, um, Supreme Court appointments have tended to be most energizing for the right wing of the country, but the data that I've seen more recently suggests that Democrats are equally, if not more, energized by their concerns about the court. And I'm curious kind of how you see, obviously, it's going to be a really intense um, six weeks or so leading up to the election. And, you know, it's going to be really nail biting (laughs) to see whether they were able to get someone onto the court. Um, But like, let's assume that they do. How would that how would you expect that to affect the electoral outcome? Yeah, so I think, for one, we've, just to to start with, we've run polling in the past few days that shows that a majority of voters support waiting to appoint a new justice till after the election. Um, Not that that ever stopped Republicans from doing anything. Uh, If they can, they will. (laughs) Yeah, if they can, they will. I think in terms of how this will affect the election, like we've like you mentioned, um, Republicans have really effectively politicized the court and judicial appointments and really had strong messaging surrounding this. So you have senators and Republican leaders and voters who, you know, might say they don't support Trump's rhetoric or some of the more um, egregious things that he says, but they're um, anti-abortion or they support these different conservative principles that judicial appointments and a Supreme Court justice would really matter for. Um, so you have people on the right, like you said, voting for with those uh, judicial appointments in mind. And I think the left, uh, if there ever was a time for the left to feel mobilized by uh, Supreme Court implications of an election, this is this is the time. Um, I think it couldn't be more clear that issues like uh, Roe v. Wade, um, issues like campaign finance reform, the integrity of the Affordable Care Act that protects pre-existing people with pre-existing conditions, like all of those things are very much on the line in a very direct way, and that the Supreme Court will be hearing cases on these different issues in the near term and could really significantly, um, I mean, a conservative court could really significantly swing the pendulum in a direction that most Americans and certainly progressives don't like. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that this, that uh, the opening in the Supreme Court will significantly switch turnout for, or like mobilize turnout amongst the left, just because I think if you're on the left and you are mad about the Trump administration, you're already mad and excited to vote regardless of, yeah. of the Supreme Court. Um, but I mean, there, I'm sure there are people for whom uh, this, this Supreme Court seat is, is hopefully clearing, clearly outlining what's at stake in this election. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you weren't awake before, wake up now. Yeah. Um, but leaving that aside, so we've talked about climate change, we've talked about the court. What, what from your data are the issues that are engaging people? Because if it's not any of the crises that have been hitting us, which you would suspect it probably you know, it probably isn't about those things since the data suggests that people have made up their minds long ago um, and their minds haven't shifted. So what what do we think it is that is driving um, voters' choice in this election? 
Yeah, I think um, our polling shows that the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and the economic impacts of the pandemic are at the top of voters' minds as they head into November. Um, we also find that climate change is a big issue, and this is perhaps even more uh it's emphasized by the fact that we're seeing these climate fuel disasters across the country that are pretty undeniable and, uh, you know, visibly catastrophic. We saw San Francisco literally wake up to an orange sky a few weeks mm. ago. Um, and, and healthcare also is a top issue for voters. Um, I think that has the salience of that issue has been raised by the pandemic where we're seeing the flaws in a system that's reliant on employer based healthcare. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, obviously all of these really critical progressive priorities are on the line with the Supreme Court. Um, I also would say that that what is important to voters differs a bit in terms of demographics and age. So we see younger voters um, really caring a lot about climate change. Um, and that's true for both Democratic and Republican voters. Um, and, and Data for Progress has published some research that shows that Democrats taking bold stances on climate is a way to cleave away some younger Republicans from, from the right. Um, but still, the, the universe of persuadable voters is pretty small. And like I said, unfortunately, the way our system is set up, like certain voters in, in some states have more power just because of the Electoral College. Um, and we should be focusing on, on finding ways to promise and, and deliver things to those voters that will return material benefits to them. Yeah. So I have to ask you about your home state of Florida. Yeah. Because <laughs> Florida is going to Florida. I love Florida. <laughs> I, I love it so much. My mom lives there, but it's it's oh, pretty really? freaky there. Yeah, yeah. She, in? She's in the villages. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. For those of you who don't know, my the villages is a, a huge swathe of central Florida, which is um, populated only by uh, re retirees, effectively. Um, it is a, a huge uh, chunk of the state, which is traditionally very Republican-leaning and indeed quite Trumpy. Although my mother, who is voting for Biden, you'll be glad to know, informs Ooh. me that there are a lot more Biden signs a lot around than there used to be. So. Okay. There you go. That's There's exciting. anecdotal data. <laughs> yeah, my parents are also in Florida and they're they're swing voters. So I'm trying to I'm trying my best. <laughs> well, there you go. So so let's use what's what's going to persuade your parents? What what is going on in the minds of people down there? Yeah, I mean, I think Florida is such an interesting state politically because it is um, one of the swing states that is hugely critical for winning national presidential elections. And I mean, there's so much to say. Florida is a state that's really on the front lines of the climate crisis and already dealing with the impacts of that all the time. Um, we also have a huge immigrant population. Our criminal justice system is uh, specifically messed up. Um, and, and also, I mean, We've seen like the past in 2018, I was working on the midterm elections in Florida and both the Senate and gubernatorial races went to recount. So it's a state where you really see a lot of the, the national political issues playing out day to day. And still voters are extremely divided on um, on who to vote for, where to side. Um, I think, you know, Florida went for Trump in 2016, and, and some people will write it off as a red state, but Obama won it twice. And um, 
I very much have not given up hope on Florida. I think uh, also the coronavirus has been really a huge issue in Florida, in part because of of the really failed leadership of Governor DeSantis, who's been, you know, extremely irresponsible, I think, in handling the pandemic. And just talking to my parents that are like baby boomer Florida voters, um, I think the pandemic is is a huge issue, you know, like it affects their day to day lives. Um, I think older people are especially concerned ab- about their health and and wanting, you know, things to go back to normal and seeing uh, the clearly failed leadership of Republicans in Florida and nationally is uh pretty, you know, leaves a clear choice of who, who they would prefer as president and who they would prefer in leadership. So I think, yeah, the pandemic in, in swing states is, is I think, having salience with voters and, and showing yeah. who they want to lead. Yeah, I think the reason I'm, I'm particularly interested in Florida is um, obviously, you know, to, to recap recent history quite painfully, 2016, obviously, Trump won by winning the three Midwestern states um, that that Democrats had had assumed that we would win and wrongly um, and relied upon. So Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin polls there are are looking good, but still close for Democrats. Um, uh, and and so those three states are demographically kind of one situation. Florida has a whole mix of demographics going on. But since the start of the pandemic, if you look at all swing states, most swing states since the pen- since the start of the pandemic have, have been moving in the direction of Biden. But Florida has actually been moving slightly the other way. And I'm just sort of really surprised by that and just wonder if you have any thoughts on, on why that might be. Yeah, I think uh, some of the stories we've been seeing in the past few weeks is that Biden is struggling with Hispanic and Latino voters, um, and that has significant implications in a state like Florida that has such a large population of Hispanic voters. Um, There's a lot of, uh, there's a diaspora from Puerto Rico, there's a lot of immigrant communities, so really reaching out to Hispanic voters and Hispanic communities is critical to winning statewide in Florida. Um, I think that has been an issue for the Biden campaign that I think I saw them talking about publicly and acknowledging. And then I'm pretty sure he did a few campaign events uh, focused on, you know, outreach to that community a few weeks ago. Um, I also think young voters are pretty key in Florida just because um, young and, and urban voters and suburban voters really have the power to, to swing the, the state in one direction or the other. Um, Obama was able to win by really mobilizing communities of color in in Southern Florida, which is where I'm from, because you see pretty significant cultural changes and political views, um, depending on where you are in the state. So yeah, I mean, I think I would encourage the Biden campaign to uh, really take seriously reaching out to Hispanic and immigrant communities if if they want to win win the state of Florida. I mean, I guess that's another thing that um, that I'm, you know, if to list all my anxieties and put them out on the table for you. Um, there is <laughs> Please do. Here, have some more things to worry about. Um, obviously, you know, the pandemic has has caused a radical shift in the way that the campaign is actually conducted. And yeah. normally, Democrats would be doing an, a really aggressive job at, at their GOTV exercise right now. There would be a lot of in-person events to try and drive up enthusiasm. There would be a lot of door knocking um, and canvassing. Obviously, they've had to retrench and regroup and, and find new ways of doing things. Um, but I just I don't know how to quantify 
the impact that that might have, especially when the Trump campaign is is just carrying on having big rallies. How should we think about what we think the potential impact of a different approach to on the ground campaigning might make? Yeah, I think you're you're spot on. This election and campaigning season is is unlike any other in that a lot of the in-person activities that campaigns would usually do in order to get out the vote and persuade voters, especially in these swing states, are are not feasible just because they're not safe from a public health perspective. And I'll say, like, as someone who has volunteered uh, enthusiastically for campaigns in the past, it, it, it can make you feel kind of powerless. Um, there's obviously still phone banking and other, other ways to do voter outreach. But um, I think I mean, one of the one of the learnings for me is in, in the primary, I knocked on a lot of doors for Senator Sanders' presidential campaign, and um, that felt like it could make a big difference. And then actually, we saw that in a few states where uh, Senator Sanders had field offices and Biden didn't have any, Biden won by mm. a ton. So I think it speaks to uh, <laughs> kind of the the shortcomings of of only having a field perspective, and obviously field organizing is important, but it's not the end all be all. I think having a strong media presence and and having a media narrative that's favorable to your candidate is really key. Um, and but still, you know, knocking on doors, calling voters can be impactful in really close races. Um, it can have a marginal effect. Um, it's it's especially impactful in local races with a smaller uh, voter universe. But in statewide races like in Florida, where it comes down to literally a few thousand votes, yeah. um, that that makes a big difference. And and I I mean I, I think we're all kind of waiting to see. This is like an experiment happening in real time in terms of campaigning tactics. And campaigns are having to to adjust to these you know ever changing conditions really. Uh, rapidly. So we'll see what this teaches us about field organizing. Um, it's, I, I wish I could tell you more details. Um, I think we'll find out. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to know, isn't it? And I it guess, I, I guess one, you know, one source of, of, you know, consideration for me is that, you know, historically, we always think about Democrats as having more low propensity voters than than Republicans. So there's always been this philosophy that we have to work a little harder to get our voters to the polls. But then actually, demographically, there's an interesting turnaround in this election, whereby Biden is performing pretty well with seniors who are some of the most reliable voters. So then you have to think, well, how, I don't know how to quantify the effects of something like that, a sort of change in our demographic makeup. Obviously, we still want to get out our minority voter audiences and so forth. But actually, if kind of more reliable voters are swinging towards Biden, hard to know how to calculate the effects of that. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to, I think, one of the, the things in politics that I find most frustrating, which is the generational divide. Uh, we consistently see in our polling that voters... Uh, under 45 are, you know, by far the most progressive age group in history across the country. Um, they're overwhelmingly supportive of ambitious climate action. They're overwhelmingly supportive of environmental justice measures and different uh, progressive priorities. But that voting block just doesn't turn out to vote in the same numbers as the older voters that you were referencing. Um, so I think a piece of this is, you know, thinking about different uh, measures that can be taken statewide to 
uh, facilitate access to voting that could hopefully uh, increase turnout from young voters. Some states have had some pretty significant success with automatic voter registration and different measures that are that are just supposed to make it easier for people to vote. And that would increase turnout amongst young voters and the different minority voters. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're those are kind of more longer, medium-term goals, and when we have an election to win in the right. next few weeks. So the fact that older voters are leaning more toward Biden is good news because those are those are reliable voters who will likely turn out. And I mean, turning to the younger voters specifically, one of the things that I think a lot of people have been surprised by in the polling that we've seen so far, especially amongst minority populations, is that although Biden enjoys as most Democrats do, very, very strong support from African-American voters and Latino voters that you referenced. Um, he's struggling a little bit with especially younger voters in those populations. Um, now, the Sanders campaign, um, which you, as you alluded to, did a lot of door knocking for, they did a particularly good job of <clears throat> generating enthusiasm from from Latino voters um, across mm-hmm. the uh, across all the states that they campaigned in in the primary. Um, what do you attribute Biden's potential struggles with um, my, with younger minority voters for, and and what do you think he might do to overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, I think I'm, I mean I think there's a few key issues that are really important to young voters that Biden kind of falls short on. Uh, One that comes top of mind is marijuana legalization. Uh, Biden has yet to come out in support of that. I think Senator Harris the other day said they support decriminalizing marijuana, which is kind of not the full step that I think a lot of young voters and voters in general would be excited to see. I think also, so there's issues like that also on immigration, you know, Biden and the Obama administrations have kind of a, a, a sketchy history and track record when it comes to um, deportations and, and, and DACA uh, was, you know, people had to fight really hard in the immigration rights movement to get DACA in the first place under Obama. So I, I think there's there's some issue-specific shortcomings on behalf of the Biden campaign that, that they are addressing in some ways and are not as much in others. But I think broadly speaking, there is kind of a a general distrust that young voters have of more establishment, more career politicians uh, that represent, I think, what a lot of young voters see as the status quo. And it's a status quo that has been pretty catastrophic to uh, young people like myself. I mean, we grew up uh, we grew up seeing the climate crisis get worse and worse and, and saw these reports and the scientists around the world really sounding the alarm on this issue. And, and saw that how our elected leaders just really dropped the ball on it. Um, And those are elected leaders from both parties. I think also we, you know, grew up uh, seeing the financial collapse of 2008. And now a lot of my friends are graduating into the, like I said, the worst unemployment crisis since the Depression. So there are a lot of factors that I think lead to a sense of apathy or just, you know, distaste for politics and politicians on on behalf of young voters. And I think um, a a way to to help address that is is both by adopting policy positions that are aligned with the views of younger voters, um, who are the future of the party and the future of the country. But I think there's also a piece of it that is simply like acting with integrity and um, which unfortunately is rare in our political system and, and, you know, having a consistent track record of 
fighting for working people and young people really, uh, you know, a track record like that speaks for itself and, and has salience amongst younger voters. I think that's a really interesting point um, because one of the things that people that I've often read about the younger generation of voters is that although, as you alluded to, on a policy level, they're very progressive and um, very kind of um, that they're really, really bold on issues like climate and immigration and so forth. They also are much less likely to align themselves with the political party and the sort of organizational framework of politics. And I've just been mulling lately whether thinking about kind of previous generations and previous electoral shifts that have happened in generations, what it would take to bring young voters on board. Like what kind of action would the party need to take? And it sounds like you're saying, you know, actually bolder action on issues like climate change, although it might, you know, have electoral, you know, politicians have been nervous about it because they think, oh, it's going to turn off these voters. But it like the plus side to that, I think what you're arguing is the opportunity to align a whole generation of of voters back into the party framework. Or do you think that's even realistic? You think people are beyond party now? I don't know if I would say it's like people are irredeemably beyond party affiliation. I think, you know, I can speak for myself. Like I have felt very disappointed with the leadership of both parties. I think uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that both are equally responsible by no means, but in terms of, of feeling just let down by both leaderships and the Democratic and Republican parties is a real feeling amongst younger people. And it's for all of of the reasons I laid out very much, you know, the circumstances we're coming of age in are quite radicalizing. And um, I don't know, I think, uh, like, my view is that party affiliation matters to me much less than like where a candidate stands on the issues and what their track record is. That being said, where I stand on the issues always leads me to vote for Democrats. <laughs> um, but there is, there is, I think you're identifying something real, which is that like, I always vote for Democrats. I'm not like thrilled to be like, I'm a Democrat. Yeah. Um, at the same time, like I have dedicated countless hours to electing Democrats. And I think there is that generational difference. And I don't know if it matters that much. I think what matter, I think, I don't think it matters that much to get young people to be like, yes, I'm a Democrat. I think it matters more to put different policies in place that actually facilitate young voters having more of a voice in the political process, which will, you know, which will, the next step for that will benefit Democrats just because they're way more aligned with young people on the issues. And I think one of the, the learnings for me from the 2020 primary was that, um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, it's really disappointing the rates of voter turnout amongst young people because we really could change the country so dramatically if we voted yeah. at the same numbers <laughs> as the older generations do. And it's this tension where, like, we want to outreach to young people. We should. Obviously, I'm in support of that. But also young voters are not really reliable voting block that can uh, that it can show up consistently in elections. And that's both on young people to change. Everyone should register to vote. Yesterday was National Voter Registration Day. But also, I think there are key, you know, voter suppression tactics that are effective on young people. And there are policies that expand the electorate and make it easier for people to vote that we should prioritize because it will get more young people to the polls. 
I mean, this is sort of straying off the subject of our conversation, but it, it is really, it, it's a really interesting area for me because I think back on my own experience of being a member of the party and how I discovered that just by showing up at the party, I could have a lot more influence just at a local level and and in terms of changing hearts and minds within the party infrastructure and those things could filter up, et cetera, et cetera. But my experience of working within the party is is kind of old school Democrat because Democrats Abroad, which is the party organization I belong to, they have almost as much of a social function as a political function, which is right. how the Democratic Party used to be, right? It used to be much more Democratic clubs and societies and that, you know, you would you would like the the party would be more than just where you place your vote it would often be like you know people called it a machine but it would literally be like people from the party would come around and see like how you doing what do you need like how's your household you know and i think you know as much as you know some of that sometimes that got a little dodgy i think there is a part of it that's like we are crying out for some kind of person to person social connection architecture and the party isn't that like to say yeah. the least and i do wonder if it actually like the sanders campaign did a wonderful job of kind of building a sense of connection between people and a real movement that i think has an enduring legacy and i just wonder if we couldn't as a party be more thoughtful about what happens between elections in terms of being a place for people yeah i i love thinking about this i think um among the many issues that are disproportionately impacting my generation, loneliness and stress are some of them. And um, I think there's a bunch of issues that play into that. Obviously, social media, increasingly digital relationships that, you know, make you feel like you have hundreds of friends, but then do you actually? Um, that plays into feelings of loneliness. Also, just, I think, our society's obsession with, you know, individual it, like individualized success and neoliberalism has some impacts on the psyche. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting to hear about your experience because that has never, like the De the Democratic Party has never been really perceived as a social club by me or my peers. No. But I think there's a, a new evolution, perhaps a, an evolution of that, which is with um, social movement organizations. Like for instance, um, Sunrise Movement played a huge role in my politicization when I was younger. And I really found a political home and a political community and social community in organizations like that. And organizing um, on my college campus, I was part of the fossil fuel and private prison divestment campaigns. And I mean, those groups that are political organizing groups also provide a space for community building. And I mean, one of the, the learnings of my life has been that, you know, there really is no human connection quite like the connection that's built amongst people who are fighting for a common cause, who are in struggle for a worthy cause together that really, you know, yeah. the human connection and bonding that's built in those moments is really um, unmatched. And I think the Democratic Party should be thinking of, of how to maintain a presence in communities and how to build a social network that does not just come around every four years when there's a presidential election. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. And also, I just want to say like the way that I view politics is very much not like I don't believe in political saviors. I believe in social movements. And um, 
this election to me is not just about Joe. It's not about Joe Biden as a human being. It's about fighting for a political landscape that will be most responsive to social movements demands for change. And, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of our conversation, but you see public opinion and social movement energy surrounding these issues. And that doesn't always translate into policy change and really electoral politics and electing people who are more sympathetic to social movements is how you build that. I yeah, I think a lot of things there. Hundred so. <laughs> percent. No, I, th- I I'm totally on board with that. I think because I think my experience, Democrats abroad, has a social function because Democrats who live overseas don't have many other ways of interacting with their compatriots and political movements, right? Mm-hmm. So we have we host a lot of social events. You know, I used to host a pub night once a month where just people could stop by and ask any questions they wanted. We do lots of film screenings of politically themed films, all sorts of things. So there is a durable community of connection of people with shared values that you can you see time and again. And the nice thing about that from my experience has been that there are people in that community who I might disagree with about an inter-party argument, but I know I'm going to see them again next month, next week, next year. Like we're going to keep seeing each other. So we've got to work that through, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we can't, you know, we have our fights, but we know that it's something that we need to keep working through and, you know, come out the other side of. So I just think it's a really, it's an interesting model for us to look to, especially when, as you say, um, you know, social movements, social movements have been able to create that social connection between people, but they haven't always done a good job of translating that into the raw political power, especially in a place where our political system is so broken and dysfunctional. Um, And I really worry about the conjunction of a political system that doesn't allow for change to happen or be affected, even if there is this social groundswell and the frustration of young people is completely valid. And it doesn't necessarily help them to have the Democrats say, we did everything we could because the votes weren't there in Congress and X, Y, Z. Like that may all be true, but it is mm-hmm. not what people need to heal to feel like they're to hear, to feel like their work is 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 having meaning. And I think the sense that people's meaningful work towards a social cause that they believe in can't be enacted in the political system is is a dangerous trend for our democracy. It's like literally dangerous. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's why you see Um, really alarming number of Americans saying they distrust our institutions or they dislike Congress. I mean, that's pretty, that transcends partisan affiliation. Um, And and I think it's partially because you see such gridlock for all of the, the reasons we're talking about. And, and just to emphasize one of your points about social movements being electorally oriented, I think a problem you often see amongst the left and young people specifically is kind of this like, uh, purity politics where like the democratic party is too imperfect to engage in joe biden is has too sketchy of a track record for young people to trust him and like those things may be true but at the end of the day it is critical that we build political power alongside the people power that we're building and um you know being involved in electoral politics and in a country like the united states that has so many uh, racist policies ingrained into our system and the foundation of our country uh, to engage in electoral politics when you have something like the Electoral College that's so inherently anti-democratic, not to even mention the Senate. Like all of those are extremely disillusioning things that make people rightfully so feel disillusioned by engaging in our electoral process. 
And that being said, I think that when young people or people who are in social movements kind of let themselves be um, too ideological or too, um, you know, the purity politics oriented to engage with our electoral system, I think they leave a lot of power uh, up for grabs that, that people who are far less aligned with us often take advantage of. Yeah. So um super for electoral orientation of social movements (laughs) but i think i i think the other the other problem that um that we are facing is that although electoral um electoral focus often means that you have to be prepared to compromise Mm -hmm. there are issues like climate change where almost the moment for compromise has come and gone. Um, and there are, you know, I had this conversation with a, a Republican friend of mine not that long ago where he was saying, oh, well, you know, I, I'm all for I'm all for something on climate change, but I think we need to do a carbon tax and this and that before that. And I was like, three years ago, I'd have been on board with that. Five years ago, 10 years ago. But it's too late. Like the, the stagnation has meant that we need more radical solutions. And just to solve the problem, otherwise it won't be affected. And I'm curious, kind of considering that need for more radical solutions and the fact that, like, if you are serious about tackling this, we are going to have to ask people to make some sacrifices. What have you seen be effective in moving people who might be swingable on issues like climate, but who are nervous about something that's perceived as bold or as radical as as the Green New Deal? Yeah, I think for far too long the Democrats have kind of embraced an incrementalist approach on climate change. And frankly, like you said, the time for incrementalist solutions is far gone. I wish that we could have addressed this decades ago and it didn't have to be like a dramatic transformation of society. But unfortunately, the people... Here we are. Yeah, unfortunately, here we are. This is where we find ourselves. And um, in many ways, this is the climate election. Like this is the last chance that we will have in the United States to really enact climate legislation that meets the scale of the crisis and averts the worst impacts of uh, you know, the catastrophic future that we're spiraling towards. I'm really fun at parties. I was chatting about this. Um, <laughs> same for me. I'm like, don't invite me to parties. I'll just bring everyone down. <laughs> I know my most common phrases are like crisis and catastrophe, but it's true. The light of democracy. death. <laughs> yeah. What are we going to do? Um, but I think, I mean, yeah, I, I would say, like like we were just saying, engaging in politics often requires compromise. And at the same time, we're in a situation where compromising on something like climate change has really dire consequences. So I would say in terms of political strategy, I am all about elected officials um, putting forward a bold, ambitious vision that actually is what we need and is what justice and science demands. And when it comes to actually legislating and getting something done, if it requires compromise, that's what it requires. Um, But I think for Democrats or Biden or any other candidate to really seed ground on an issue like climate change before they're even in power is a mistake. Um, And in terms of of convincing voters who maybe are skeptical, um, I would there's two ways I could go about answering this. One is just in terms of polling, you know, job creation and environmental justice and clean air and water are some of the most popular framings of climate. And I'm happy to delve deeper into that. But another thing that I would say is that often, you know, the Green New Deal is called radical and it's this socialist policy on the left. 
And one, our polling shows that that those messages don't actually resonate with voters very much. But secondly, I would say like the status quo is extremely radical. The path that we are on is radical. And who gets to define what is radical is often reflective of what the power structures are and who's in power in society. Like the fact that that California and Oregon are literally on fire right now is radical. So um, (laughs) and people talk about the cost of the Green New Deal, but actually I would argue that we need to be talking more about the cost of an action um, because the Green New Deal has a price tag, will cost money to transform our society away from fossil fuels for sure, but it will cost much more to not do anything about climate change countless millions of people across the world will lose their lives and livelihood to climate catastrophe. Um, And this is really an issue that has, will have repercussions that will, you know, exist thousands of years from now, literally. So what's radical and what's not, I think uh, the status quo is pretty radical, if you ask me. (laughs) <laughs> nice one uh yeah it's it's one of those things where and I, I, I was talking about this with someone recently um that there there are so many things that exist today that you would never do it that way if you were creating it now but it feels radical to change it right like mm-hmm. i was thinking i'm a dc voter you know i'm a registered okay. voter in the district of columbia i have no congressional representation of any kind Right. And if some if somebody came to you now and said, I'm going to strip voting rights from 700,000 U.S. citizens, you'd be like, of course you're not. That's like, I'll fight that. That would be ridiculous. That'd be a horrible thing to do. But the D.C. voters don't have citizenship rights. And it's considered it's a considered extreme or radical action to suggest that they might have it. Um, It just goes to show how kind of easily we adopt whatever is as normal as opposed to thinking about a broader sense of a kind of justice or fairness. Totally agree. It's, I cannot believe DC doesn't have representation. I mean, (laughs) I mean, our country was literally founded on no taxation without representation, but alas. Right. Right. Yeah. So listen, Marcella, it's been great talking to you. Have you got a few minutes to play the gut check game? I sure do. I'm a little nervous for this. I'm not going to lie, but I'm excited. <laughs> it's not a test. You can't fail. Don't worry. Okay. How do I play? <laughs> so here's how this works. Simple as can be. Um, I have in front of me in my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, some little bits of paper in which I have written um, some polling data um, that have that I've seen recently. So non-horse race polling data. So it isn't head to head. It is about an issue or a topic. I'm going to have a, I'm going to read it out. And all we just do is we just react to it. So like gut check, what's our reaction okay. to this? And I would love to know from you, um, you know, if you've got any thoughts about the, the poll itself, then shout out, shout out those, but also kind of what is this telling us about the state of the American electorate? Oh my God. I'll try to give you some hot takes. Give me some hot takes. I love those juicy hot takes. Bring them. So here's uh, the first one. This is from the African American Research Collaborative poll. Um, And it says, it's a question is, is the Democratic Party welcoming to black Americans? Um, And it asked black voters of different ages. Black voters 18 to 29, 46% of them say the Democratic Party is welcoming. Black voters 60 and over, 76% say the Democratic Party is welcoming. All black voters surveyed, 61%. What is this telling us? 
Um, I think it's telling us about what we were talking about earlier, that young voters are to the left of a lot of the mainstream Democratic Party positions. This past summer, we saw the movement for Black Lives literally be the biggest social movement in U.S. history, and that was largely powered by energy from young people. And at the same time, they're you know, one of the main demands and rallying cries of that movement was to defund the police. And at the same time, you saw a lot of Democratic Party officials kind of shying away from from that kind of rhetoric or, or policy orientation. And I think, you know, young people not here for it, older voters, <laughs> more conservative, I think. Yeah. Is it that older voters are more conservative? So my gut reaction to that was, it feels like there's a there was an alignment with with the Democratic Party that African American voters made around the civil rights movement, and that's just really sticky, right? Like they really they they know what side their bread is buttered on. They 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 associate the Democratic Party with being the people who were on their side when the chips were down, and the new the younger generation doesn't have those experiences. So I mean that feels like a part of it to me. I would totally agree with that. And I think it's why you see someone like Bernie Sanders be so popular amongst younger bo- voters, because he speaks to this kind of frustration with more established Democratic Party politics. Yeah. But I mean, I would argue that we are we are we are obviously encountering a civil rights, a new civil rights revolution. Um, but a lot of the same problems that the older generation um, saw saw at the time with the Voting Rights Act in things like voter suppression, they're they're here now. I mean, they are a hundred percent back with, with a vengeance. It's like what old what's old is new again, right? It's retro chic. Um, yeah. you know, poll taxes and and literacy tests and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Is back. So I, I look at people like, you know, Stacey Abrams and I just think, um, you know, she speaks truth in a way that I would expect younger voters might 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 align with. Yeah, I I think so. I think um, backing policy priorities of the social movements that young people are leading is also a key piece of that. And to your point on poll taxes, I don't know if you followed, but in Florida, they recently overturned the ballot and or didn't overturn, but essentially gutted the ballot initiative that would have reinstated voting rights for people with former felonies and basically enacted a poll tax. So yeah. I saw it. I'm pretty pissed off about it. (laughs) Yeah, really? Another devastating blow to add to the list. It's, yeah, it's not good. Um, Yeah. Here's another one. So here's, this is from an NBC. (laughs) (laughs) See, nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) Nobody can win. Nobody can lose. We're just chatting. Um, This is from an NBC News report. It says, Trump's big problem is that Biden is winning more non-college whites than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. The latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll shows Biden losing them by 23 points, whereas exit polls showed Clinton losing them by 37 points. That would be more than enough to offset modest gains Trump has made since 2016 among Hispanics and other non-whites. What? what's your hot take i don't know um yeah i think i well it's a there are a lot more non-college white voters in the country than there are of a lot of other categories so you know that's that's a lot of people that we're talking about like it's a big chunky category i'm really interested to see not just how these people how these people vote but whether they vote 
Because mm-hmm. in 2016, we saw a, an unusually high voting proportion from that population. I suspect that Trump's celebrity was some part of that. Like that, you know, people who didn't think of themselves as caring about politics were almost like as much fans of Trump as they were um, political supporters of his. And I would just be really curious to see whether he, as an incumbent president who people have mixed feelings about, whether he generates that same kind of celebrity driver, if you if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think I wonder how the celebrity will uh, affect voters now that we've had four years of him actually in office I think one piece of this is that a lot of the rhetoric Trump had in 2016 of like draining the swamp and and anti-establishment rhetoric I think perhaps will have less salience amongst those voters now that we've uh not only seen him be part of the swamp but really empower some of the the biggest culprits of um swamp-like politics if you will um I also think a piece of this is that Hillary Clinton was a uniquely unpopular candidate and Biden doesn't face some of the similar issues that she did electorally for whether or not that's fair. I think it's a reality. And also, I think, I mean, the economic conditions that the country is seeing right now are pretty hard to deny. And whether or not your politics are aligned with Trump or Biden, I think the unemployment numbers and the fact that Republicans are in control of the White House and the Senate and have failed to pass um, a new coronavirus relief package that extends unemployment or addresses the eviction crisis and really basic needs that that working class people of all races are facing in the country right now, I think uh, is probably affecting some of those voters. I think I I also think it will be really interesting and I hope the Democrats use some of this messaging. I'm I'm surprised not to see more corruption messaging around Trump because mm-hmm. I I think particularly for this audience there's a real sense of like fat cats who have come into the White House. I mean I think about Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, like billionaire. Oh. Um you know, DeVos in education, like there's really a sense of these, like they're land grabbing, like just going in and taking shit. And, you know, Trump's personally profiting from a lot of his presidential yeah. activity. And I just I, I, I'm surprised not to see more leaning on that because it feels very like class warfare of him literally taking my tax dollars to put in his own pocket feels like it should be a rich territory but i don't know if that's just my instinct if that's backed in the polls no i think that instinct is is correct i can speak specifically with uh climate change one of the the framings that work best on voters is talking about trump not listening to experts or scientists for climate change or the pandemic and i think kind of the the next step to that argument is like, well, who is he listening to? And it's the people who are profiting off of his presidency. It's the fossil fuel executives, um, the people he's appointed in DOJ who are just kind of doing his, his corrupt work. And I also would like to see more framing around corruption because there is this sentiment, I think, across party lines of being just like disgusted with the corruption that is uh, entrenched in our politics. And um, I think Democrats would be wise to stake out Biden and the Democratic Party is is the party that that opposes that. Yeah, yeah. And he's got, I mean, I think Biden, it's a strong argument territory for Biden because he's got sort of personal credibility in that. You know, he, he is not seen as being 
a senator who personally, you know, in you know, he was famously the poorest U.S. senator, which says more about how frighteningly rich to me as senators are but you know and he did he's got his amtrak story about going home every night you know um he has he has more of a sense of of kind of being in touch with um with ordinary people than i think you know trump could ever fantasize about yeah. having he's with his gold toilets and things so it feels like there's rich territory there i also think in terms of the pandemic like we've as a country we're collectively experiencing such a drastic magnitude of loss that it's like hard to internalize or process and yeah. I'm, I mean I feel outrage fatigue all the time from from the things that are happening like literally mass death at the yeah. same time that all these other things are happening and I think Biden uh you know you can say what you want about him but he has more of a an empathetic uh leaning yeah. than Trump yeah. which is uh, obviously, the the bar is low with the Trump administration, but that kind of empathetic and and compassionate leadership, I think, will resonate with voters as well. Yeah, that actually leads me very nicely to the next one that I have here because I'm curious your take on this um, in terms of how Trump how Trump and Biden's face off in the debates will go and how oh he might come across. In a new NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 44% said that the presidential debates are, quote, not at all important for deciding their vote. 18% said they were extremely important. And 11% said quite important. What do we think about that? I think, I mean, I think that my my parents are kind of like this. They're the type of voters who are like, I'll watch the debates and see who convinces me, which to me is like, how do you not know already? Like, what else do you need to hear? Um, so, yeah, I think the the eight, that 18 percent that says it's extremely important. I think though a lot of those swing voters, unfortunately, have a disproportionate electoral impact. So I hope the debate goes well for our side. Um, I think at the end of the day, the debates have a marginable slash negligible impact. I think kind of the worst thing that can happen is if one of the candidates makes any major gaffes and then those are turned into negative campaign ads. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely curious to see how these debates are going to go. Something to point out is that they released the, the topics that would be addressed in the first debate a few days ago, and, and climate change is not one of them, which I think is pretty egregious and disturbing. Um, and I would love to see uh, the Biden campaign make a point to still include climate change and in whatever it is that he talks about at the debate, um, because climate change really cannot be extricated from the other issues that we're facing. So that's something to keep an eye out for. But I mean, the debate, the people who are waiting for the debates to decide who to vote for. I know. I, <laughs> I really literally would like to sit that 18% of the population I down. Know. Just go, like, talk to me about this. Cause, that's cause, pretty high. Yeah, that's actually higher than the number of voters who are undecided. So it suggests that there are at least wow. some voters who might be willing to switch. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a little worried. I think Trump is like really um, like can command a stage and for better or for worse, like he is pretty aggressive debater. So I'm curious to see how Biden responds. I don't know. I think like, I, I'm so unqualified to judge this because I watch him and I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Like no, I get that true. some of it is good TV, but like 
none of it makes me think he's good at this. I just watch it and go like, it's fascinating to see this happening in front of my eyes, but like none of like, it Aaron, makes me, me and think... you were too far gone. We're too yeah. far. <laughs> yeah. I think I he's think charismatic that... and like you said, good TV, which unfortunately in, in the media economy we live in, that has political power. So, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting on the debate prep for both sides and whether it's true or not, um, it but it sounds very plausible. Um, the reporting has been that Trump is not doing any formal debate prep because he just doesn't have the attention span. So, uh, which is so Trump. Um, <laughs> so apparently, you know, his his staff have struggled to get him to focus on it. Um, Biden is doing a lot of debate tra- debate prep, as is Kamala Harris and so forth. Um, I the thing is, I expect Biden to do well in the debate. And he's had a lot of practice recently. Like, I actually, I think it's really good for him as a candidate that he went through such an aggressive primary. Trump is out of practice with engaging with people. And, yeah. you know, if you saw his recent ABC town hall, it was a disaster. Um, It was, it was, Trump was a disaster, even by his own standards, because when he had to interact with, interact with ordinary voters, he could not do it. Wow. So, I mean, we'll see, but. The thing that worries me is the stakes for it are so high because with Biden being ahead, he can only fall back, right? Like there's not much to gain. Yeah, no, that is scary. Um, Fingers crossed I'll be on the edge of my seat watching the debate. Yeah. I I would be so nervous if I had to do a debate like that. I can't even (laughs) imagine. (laughs) Stakes are high. Well, it's not. I mean, that's one thing. It is not Joe Biden's first rodeo. He's done this before so i'm you know i'm sure he's he he understands the importance of it but like equally he knows what he's doing yeah (laughs) right okay and so i've got one final one here um which touches on something we were talking about earlier pew asked democratic and republican voters which issues are quote very important to their vote in the 2020 presidential election in their poll 66 percent of democrats and only 61 percent of republicans named supreme court appointments I wonder so, if this was before or after RBG dying. Was my yeah. gut reaction. I imagine those numbers will probably be higher now that we know for sure there's a vacancy. Yeah. I always wonder about this. I think it frustrates me that the left doesn't care enough about the Supreme Court because they make laws. Like they yeah. find everything so much in our politics. But I think it's most people can't be bothered to care about process things and or understand why things are the way they are. And so I just think a lot of voters don't understand on our side that a Supreme Court appointment is like it's like a presidential election. It's like, yeah, who is going to be making these decisions for you? Yeah, totally. I agree. I think um the right has really had a sophisticated and effective long-term strategy for taking over the court. Um, You see this, what's it called? The Federalist Society, where they like literally groom people since they're in law school to get them ready to to be uh, on the Supreme Court. I'd love to see the left kind of take on a similar long-term ruthless strategy for accumulating power. And yeah, I mean, it's really scary. And I think it speaks to like what I was getting at earlier, where it's like, it's really not about the candidate. Like there are plenty of things that 
you could not like about Joe Biden. And at the end of the day, like, do you want a Supreme Court justice who is going to uphold Roe v. Wade or is going to dismantle it? Like on all of these issues, it's so critical for people to vote for a Democrat who will put someone on the Supreme Court that shares at least some of our values and at the very least will function as some sort of check on power on the Republicans. Karen, I'm so freaked out by the minority rule that Republicans are able to have on our country. And it's just the way that they're, you know, uh, getting seats on the Supreme Court, the way the Senate is set up, the way the electoral is college is set up where you can lose. They've lost like most Republicans have lost most, if not all of the elections in my lifetime in terms of the popular vote. And still George Bush's presidency was defining part of my life and, and Trump's. And it's just, it's radicalizing a little bit. Karen. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit radicalizing. Yeah. A hundred percent. I can't agree with you more. It's, and it's across all dimensions of politics. It's the courts, it's Congress, it's the presidency. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, what, what is it like the Republicans have only won a popular vote majority in one of the last six presidential elections. And yet six of the six of the right. nine Supreme Court justices will have been appointed by Republicans. It's so scary. And then the like positive feedback loop of that, where now the Supreme Court justices will gut the Voting Rights Act, will make it harder for people to vote, will make it easier for billionaires like the Koch brothers to overtake our democracy. And will allow gerrymandering to continue in favor of the Republican. It's just like the self-perpetuation of their power, despite not having a mandate from the majority of Americans is really concerning. And for this reason, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, I feel like the paralysis of our politics and the, the, the minoritarian rule that has prevented democratic accountability for a, a generation now, um, I feel like we have to tackle that as the kind of critical, it is like a climate change level emergency um, for making things work. And I, so I feel like we need to, this is an Overton window. We need to move. We need to get people to understand that structural political reform has the urgency, the same level of yes. like we need social movements behind reforming how our institutions work because they are broken completely. You can't see me because it's a podcast, but I am snapping for what Karen <laughs> is saying right now. I think you're totally spot on. And it's so much less like sexy of a, a demand, you know, like like Green New Deal now is like way more fun than like we need to do all of these like structural changes to make sure our democracy can continue at least somewhat functioning like um but I totally agree that's the top priority and I think um I think structural reform and uh expanding voting rights addressing voter suppression giving DC statehood giving Puerto Rico the option of statehood like all of these need to be top priority for what's hopefully the incoming democratic administration um and democratic congress like because i mean like like we were saying earlier republicans are really ruthless in their their strategy for accumulating power and i think it's about damn time democrats were as well because um this is like do or die for yeah. for the well-being of our republic yeah, I mean, I have to say, I have a, I have 
like I'll leave I'll, I'll let's finish off on a note of hopefulness because <laughs> I, I I'm gonna say you know it's a hellscape out there but here's here's a thought that cheers me up a little bit Tell me. I feel like Joe Biden might be a very good person to do that like I think he might be very well placed if he becomes president to be the person who leads a process of significant structural reform almost in a kind of Nixon going to China type of way right because it's important that the American people not see our effort to try and make our democracy work as radical. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like Joe Biden is not a radical. Like he is somebody who just believes in making the system work. And I think it is a like for him to take it seriously, a not as a radical, uh, a radical extremist move, but just as like a, a sensible rebalancing of power. B, he's very good at engaging his party and keeping it on board and working with kind of like we are not going to be able to collaborate with the other side of the aisle. So we need as a party to work well together um, and use all of the kind of levers of power that we do have and everybody in Congress and so forth. Joe's really good at that. Like it's been something he spent his career doing is working with other Democrats and across the aisle whenever he can. So it might be the right thing for that. And and B, like, I think it's great for the pressure to be imposed on him at the grassroots level. Like, so it isn't him coming in with, I've got this big agenda, but like to have him be moved, I think is very persuasive. So yeah, that's my, that's my like, here, here's a, here's a reason to be cheerful. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're right. And I hope, you know, it's not the theory of change that I necessarily would have bought into the most earlier on in the primary, but it's the one that we have. And I think... Uh, the difference between Biden and Trump couldn't be more clear, if nothing else, at the very least, to what you're saying, that Joe Biden will be more accountable to the demands of grassroots pressure. And that's that means a lot. And I mean, at the very least as well, just protecting basic democratic institutions and norms has never been more important. Great. Well, so that's a good note to leave it on. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have hope, right? What else you got? (laughs) Did you mail in? Did you get your mail-in ballot yet? How are you? Yeah, I voted absentee. I voted last Saturday. I put I took it to the post office. Everything. How about you? What's your voting plan? Um, I'm vote. I vote in Florida and the mail-in ballot system in Florida is just deeply unreliable. So I, I would have liked to vote in person, but obviously with the pandemic, that's not, uh, super, responsible or feasible so i'm gonna vote by mail in palm beach county so great have you got your ballot yet um i did get my ballot thanks all right yeah get it back (laughs) yeah post it it will do save usps also save usps postal service god rest it (laughs) marcella it's been such a delight to talk to you thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for all the wonderful work that you do at data for progress Thank you so much for having me. Let's go win an election. Go win this thing. (laughs) And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jr. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Don't forget to make donations to our Act Blue page if you can. That's Act Blue slash donate slash democratically to make your donation to our uh, campaign fund. If you haven't voted, please do. <laughs> if you can help others vote, please do that too. Um, if you uh, need to get a ballot, you haven't registered, you have any questions or issues, um, the websites you want to go to are vote.org if you're an American back home or votefromabroad.org if you're an American overseas like me. 
I should let you know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me here and I wish you a very happy week. Thank you.